Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. If, if a musician tells you that they don't read their own reviews, I think they're all lying because I think it's uh, super interesting to uh, have feedback from people about music. They don't decide uh, in the end what, where I will go musically, but I really like that input anyway. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. Marco Tervonen is a founding member and guitarist of The Crown, a death metal band from Sweden's West Coast. Royal Destroyer, the band's 10th album, comes out on March 12th via Metal Blade Records. Marco discusses reaching this landmark, their 30-plus year career, songwriting, recording with live performance in mind, and how their five-year break after Crowned Unholy shaped expectations when the band got back together. We also touch on jamming with his son and contemporary album production. Check out the episode notes where you'll find music videos from Royal Destroyer and a companion playlist. Let's dive and get heavy with Marco Tervonen of The Crown. Marco, welcome to Heavy Hops. We're very glad to have you. Hey, nice to be here. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll kick off uh, talking about your new album, Royal Destroyer, which uh, comes out the day after this airs. So we're uh, we're pretty excited for that. I know you are as well. Um, starting with that album, uh, in the past, with the exception of Doomsday Machine which were Doberman songs, if I understand correctly. Uh, you and Magnus, the bassist, have split songwriting responsibilities. Um, Robin, your lead guitarist, has contributed songs to Royal Destroyer as well. You have a relatively new drummer to the lineup as well. Um, what's it like folding these new members into the songwriting uh, process? It's worked really great. Uh... Henrik, the drummer, he joined us in the late process of uh, the Death Is Not Dead album. He, he helped us to record some bonus tracks, actually. And, uh, but then he joined us so full time. And uh, uh, Robin came in a bit in the same, same time as well. So, uh, so it became very apparent that during the Death Is Not Dead album that we were a bit lost when we didn't have a functioning uh, lineup. So uh, the previous album, Corbus with Venom, was the first album we did with this lineup, and uh, it turned out so good. Uh, we were so proud of that album that we, we found a really good way to work, and uh, uh, we just work really well together, and, uh, and we just continue with that to, for the Royal Destroyer as well. So, uh, and it worked again. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, yeah, gr great guys, you know. We have a lot of fun when we are traveling and we work together well. And uh, yeah, it, it feels really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can it can be interesting adding new folks to the fold that are a little younger as well. And if you've established dynamic uh, such as yourself and uh, Magnus, um, it can lead to a lot of cool new ideas and new ways of thinking about things. Do you feel as though that yeah, may have yeah. been the case as well? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, especially for the drumming part, uh, uh, Henrik is the youngest one, and uh, he has some different ideas of how to play. You know, brutal. There's so many ways of doing like a blast beat. I mean, we always had always this same type of blast beat, but now he's doing. He can do some. You know, I believe they call it something like American blast beat, like hammer beast, uh, hammer. Hammer grind, what the hammer blast, I think it's called. I mean, different techniques, you know, that, uh, bringing in different flavors, and that's cool. Uh, but Robin is kind of a new guy to the band, uh, but we go way back. Yeah, I mean, we 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 known each other since we were 15 years old. So uh, he's he's an old old friend. Uh, he is actually the cousin to, of my ex-wife. So we go way back. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, Hendrik being the new guy, bringing in new ideas, I, I think it's great. It just uh, widens the sound, you know? Mm -hmm. 
now uh, you were originally slated to record this album in May, and uh, for reasons I think we all understand, it was recorded until it was recorded in October instead. Uh, how did you keep fresh with the material during that gap? And did any songs change uh, in that time frame, or were new things kind of brought in in that time frame? Yeah, well, we had a, a clear plan what to do in May, uh, the type of album we were about to uh, record. And uh, but th then the whole COVID thing came, and uh, I remember we were really frustrated that we had to postpone it. But that was actually, in the end, a good thing for us uh, because we had time to think about the album. And uh, so when we sort of started to rehearse again after a few months, we, we made some shifts. We removed two songs, added two new ones. So uh, uh, in the end, it became a, a better album. So um, that was a good thing. So uh, in retrospect, it was really good to have that. So when you think you're done, you know, you know the songs, but you need to take a break for three months, you know? So uh, that, uh, but for us, it became uh, a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, that kind of time gives you room to kind of build on your previous ideas. So when you went back to re rehearsing after your last album, uh, Cobra Speed Venom, did you find the practices you use differing um, or has the run up to recording other albums kind of been the same as far as rehearsals go? I would say pretty much the same because we, we always start out after an album. We, we start from, you know, we don't have a, a grand plan what we're going to do with the next album. We start with rehearsing song number one. And it's like, okay, that was a brutal song. Then we go to song number two. And we basically go around the table. Magnus shows a song, Robin shows a song, Iso shows a song. You know, that's just how we do. And somewhere when we're around song number eight or nine, you start to get the big picture. And you start to sort of think like, okay, this is the type of album it's gonna be, you know. And then you start to do the tweaks and maybe start to feel like, oh, there's the, there should be a heavy song there or something. Does anyone have a heavy song? You know, we go, we're always on a surplus when it comes to songs. We have shitloads of songs already, so uh, it, it's a pretty good situation to be in. So, uh, so it's like after when you are song number eight or nine, you, you try to mold this into something that makes sense. Because I think that in the end, what we want to do is to, to have a sort of variation in within an album. Uh, it shouldn't be sounding like it's done after a recipe or something like that. But rehearsal wise, it's the same approach. We, we just go around the table, as I said, and we add a lot of ideas, try out a lot of uh, you know, arrangements and stuff like that. But uh, in the end, you need to trust your gut, you know, is this a good or a bad song? And you just need to decide, yeah, yeah, this is a good, this is a good one. Let's go to the next one. And as far as um, looking at an album as a whole, um, we can see through Possess 13 that you actually approached through a, um, like an act, so to speak. It was structured in the form of like first act, second act and so forth. Do you find that you go into your writing with this kind of uh, thought in your heads or is it something that just develops through the creative process as you are writing an album as a unit? It, it, it comes much later. It's, uh, it comes in the point that I was explaining when we sort of realize what kind of album we have done. We, we, are, we have never sat down, uh, you know, when we start a new album and make up a plan. Yeah. I have this amazing idea concept album. It always starts with song number one. And obviously since we are uh, multiple uh, music writers and also lyric writers, it, it, it can be different themes here and there. So uh, I remember like with the Possess 13 stuff, it, it was uh, like afterwards, like, uh, I think it came when we started messing with the, the cover artwork that it had that little horror movie theme to it, you know? And then the whole movie thing related to, ah, oh, maybe we should divide in three acts and make it even more movie-like, you know? So those, those type of stuff usually comes much, much later. Mm -hmm. And then as far as, um, do you feel like every album, especially in like the death metal genre, it's gotta start with that heavy hitter, that absolute puncher. Is that just immediately in your thoughts and you guys fight over which track is gonna be that first track or is it usually everyone agrees? 
Uh, yeah, that's a tough one, you know, because you want to open with a, you know, with a fist, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a good way to open an album, you know, and um, for Royal Destroyer, I think at some point, every song was the opener because we had a lot of problems with the, what to decide the song order. So uh, afterwards, it's very obvious that the, the, the opening track, Baptizing Violence, is a, it's a fucking cool opener, but that wasn't the obvious first choice, actually. Uh, we even had made a master of the album, and uh, we were sort of done, and a couple of days went by, and I remember I sent a text mail to the guys, no, 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 we, we need to change, we need to open with Baptized in Violence, you know? So we made in, I made a new master and changed it, so... Uh, but yeah, I, I guess the most death metal thing is to do the, the open album with the most brutal stuff, you know? <laughs> um, speaking of brutal, uh, when I first heard the song Motor Death, I was actually reminded of a song from Death Thrace King called Out for Blood. Uh, particularly, there was something in the verse, there was uh, in the verse riffing that uh, was a little reminiscent. Um, when, and I don't, I didn't, I haven't gotten the liner notes, so I don't know if that was one that you ended up writing or if Magnus wrote it or where the impulse kind of came from. But I know in interviews you've said that that was actually inspired by a Hell Ripper song, but I'm kind of curious. Uh, so they may have heard something from you as well. could be full circle. But I'm kind of curious as to whether you look back uh, at what you've done for any precedences when it comes for, uh, to songwriting. Actually, that's a funny thing because I remember when I so, sort of showed the <clears throat> motor death riffs to the guys and we started rehearsing it that, because it's not a four, four beat all the time, the song. It's, it's like one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. So, uh, and, I, and it hit me while we rehearsed that, and I told the guys, oh, it's like the Alpha Blood song, you know, when it goes one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, so. So uh, that's when it hit me like, I guess it was inspired by my own stuff or something like that. But the Hell Ripper stuff was there as well because that inspired me to, to sort of do riffs in, in, in the, uh, in the, on the D string, you know? So it sounds very thrashy instead of always hitting the E string very dark, you know? So, uh, but yeah, you're spot on. I think you're the first one that I've noticed that. So good. <laughs> At, spent a lot of time listening to that song. Um, <laughs> it's a, a workout favorite. Um, as as far as the song uh, "We Drift On," um, it shows clean clean guitars, cleaner whispering vocals, and it builds up to like uh, kind of like a tension ending double chorus, uh, double chorus, which is like structurally a little bit different from uh, sounds aside. Structurally, it's different from. Uh, songs you've written before. Um, uh, in the press release, they really gave a, the journalists a layup in calling it a ballad. And so uh, what? tell us something about that song that you haven't told everyone else that's asked you about it. Hmm. Let me see. I can first tell that it was the most discussed song that we had because the, uh, I'm to blame for that one. And... Uh, uh, I, I sent the guys a demo version of it, and it was maybe even more mellow, you know, a very laid back version of it. And uh, I just always like the clean guitar parts. I think it has some reminiscence to um, uh, Metallica's To Live Is To Die, uh, that clean guitar stuff. And uh, But we worked on it pretty hard because that, that clean stuff, um, uh, I wrote that uh, maybe like uh, two years ago, but what I knew was that I didn't want to make an instrumental song of it. But what I struggled with that, what, how can we sing over that clean stuff? We can't growl over it. It will sound silly, you know? So um, <clears throat> like months afterward, it hit me like, yeah, let's fucking whisper on it. It, it, it may sound cheesy as fuck, but let, let's try to make it work, you know? And uh, maybe one little secret is that uh, a lot of inspiration for that comes from Metallica's Unforgiven, where they actually do the heavy verse and they do the very mellow chorus, you know, just take it down, you know, and then build up again to the verse. So, uh, but it was a song we had to work a lot on, but I always felt that, fuck, I want it on the album. And I, I was also the one that sort of pushed for 
let's try to surprise people. Let's make a video out of it. Let's release single number two. Because I think all the songs we've always done videos for us, it has always been the brutal songs, you know. And I think people know that we can play fast, you know. So let, let's, let's show something else, uh, a different side. And also a different side that we have always had in our albums. There have always been a couple of different, you know, maybe mellow or heavier stuff, something like that. But uh, uh, I don't know. T time will tell if it was a smart decision or not. But uh, I like it. I'm really proud of that song. Definitely. And as a musician, um, I think being able to express yourself in such a dynamic way that isn't just always flat, fast, blast beats, go, go, go. It really shows, you know, the full potential of your creative ability. However, when you're in a death metal band, the fans and their perception of that can kind of get distorted. So do you block out those negative reactions when, you know, you do decide to express yourself in like maybe a slower way with cleaner guitars? Or do you embrace that hate and then it fuels, you know, the, the faster songs later on in an album? I think it, uh, I just embrace it. <clears throat> and actually I was a bit disappointed when we released that single because I was expecting a shit storm. I was expecting to be called a sellout and all of that. And people thought, yeah, it's a good song. I was like, fuck, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to surprise people, you know, and uh, maybe shock them a bit. So, uh, but I like that. I, I, I think uh, if, if a musician tells you that they don't, read their own reviews i think they're all lying because i think it's uh, super interesting to uh, have feedback from people about music they don't decide uh, in the end what where i will go musically but i really like that input anyway mm -hmm. yeah for sure um and then kind of moving into recording this uh album you return to studio fredman um why was it important for you guys to go back there and then um, working with Frederick, what do you take away as a musician and a producer working with someone like that? And also the timing in which, or the time frame in which you recorded this record was very short. Um, how do you feel like you can capture everything that an album encompasses in such a short amount of time? And you also didn't record it live. It was all tracked individually. So can you kind of walk us through this process and these decisions? Yeah, I, th I think we discovered that way of recording with the previous Corpus Speed Venom album because um, <clears throat> I remember uh, before that I, I, I produced uh, two albums for the Crown, but for Corpus Speed Venom, we decided, I, I said, I don't want to be the producer. It's too much. I, I just want to be a guitar player, you know? And working with Frederick before, you know, with Possessed 13 and Death Rage King, we, we knew that um, obviously he knows his ways in the studio and uh, uh, always does a professional end result, you know. So, so he started with the Cobra Street Venom session. We went, uh, we had a talk with him. We said that we don't, we don't want to do this, the, you know, we want to do this a bit more punky way. A bit, I mean, you know, uh, just go in and capture performances, record one or two takes per song, and that's it. We're not nothing overanalyzing stuff and going in, you know, solo track, listen to everything and trying to find mistakes and squeals and stuff like that. So it was all about, you know, was it a good take? Yeah, it was. Next one, next one, next one. So in the end, it took seven days, including vocals. So uh, that's pretty intense you know but then again we, we we were in the studio around the clock you know working all the time but we were also very well prepared we knew what to do in the studio so uh, uh, all the songs were like 100 percent done and we maybe added some improvisation idea in the middle of the night but everything was very thought out what we wanted to record so it, it was all about you know go in capture performances, no fucking drum editing for three weeks. We, we, we want to <laughs> make, make a production where people actually hear how we perform and sound, you know? So, um, and uh, I, I think that uh, approach like that comes a bit with age and confidence because <laughs> obviously if you're, if you're like a young band, you're in a studio for the first time. I mean, the producers can fucking kill you, you know, when they, you lay your good, uh, uh, take and they say eh, that wasn't that good you know uh, but do you want me to edit it so it sounds like you're a fucking awesome guitar player I mean if you're not confident that 
that poor bastard will say, yes, please do make me sound like a fucking super tight guitar player. But, but now I, I'm more into like, you know, if I, if I'm not hundred percent to something, then I'm not that good of a guitar player. Then it's, then it's okay. Because if I, if I play sloppy somewhere, that's my way of playing. I'm not better than that. So let's fucking be honest and capture that level where, what we actually can sort of play and, but luckily we play pretty good. So. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly a level of honesty in that approach. And so does that kind of, because uh, uh, from what I understand, it seems like the punk mentality of keeping the mistakes is a part of that. Um, are you concerned about uh, repl uh, being able to replicate these things live as well? Well, this is the thing that when we, obviously if there's obvious mistakes, we won't, we, we will make a retake, but but this is the way we can actually replicate this 100% live. Because uh, as I said, it's, it was about one or two takes per song, per, you know, per guitar or whatever. So this is actually how we sound live. So um, that's a good thing. I mean, because that's also the, the opposite would be that if we would be in the studio, we record and then the engineer would edit and make us sound perfect. We could never replicate that live, you know? Because we are not perfect, we are not machines. So um, I like this way. Because if, uh, yeah, put us on a stage and we play Royal Destroyer from start to finish, that's more how it sounds. Do you think that there's any opportunity in the future that you would take to actually record live in the sense of everyone playing at the same time to also capture a rehearsal room aspect? Yeah, that, that's been discussed <laughs> because uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, obviously, we need to go back and do some overdubs just for production sake. But you know, you could go in and uh, record the drums, bass, two guitars, and maybe one lead vocal live, uh, and then just add uh, for, for sonic sake, you know, add the overdubs for guitars and uh, stuff like that. So yeah, that that's been uh, on the table several times uh, as a, as an option actually. Mm -hmm. And then in the the passion of trying to be able to recreate what you're recording live, nowadays you see a lot of death metal bands and just metal bands in general, the track after track and layering and layering and layering. And it, it ends up creating something that when these bands go to play these records live, if they don't have backing tracks behind them, they just feel so empty. And so... Yeah. What is the crowd's approach versus these other bands? Do you just do what you know you're capable of doing live and that's it? Or do you do some overdubs that uh, kind of leave uh, the live sound a little lacking, but you make up for it with maybe an extra amp or something? <clears throat> no, nothing like that. It's um, what we try to replicate in the studio is, is how we basically sound. I mean, there's my guitar on the left, Robin on the right, bass in the middle, and that's it. Uh, but in, in the studio, just to get a bit more fatter guitars, you do overdubs, but you play the same thing twice. It's just for to get the better sonics out of it, you know, maybe use two different amps to blend into the sound. But but live, that's that's how you will hear if you stand in the audience and you will hear me on the left and Robin on the right. And there's no backing tracks or anything like that. And we even have the backing vocals is done in the studio by Robin and he does it live as well. So we really can replicate everything. There might be some stuff here and there that were maybe, oh, this would be cool to have a keyboard sound or something, but that's on the albums. We never do that uh, live, so. Uh. Mm -hmm. um, and this is your second album with Metal Blade after your hiatus, um, who you'd partnered with before uh, on Death Race King, Crowned in Terror, Possessed 13, and then the re-release sort of of crowned in terror um what drew you back to this label uh after a short stint with uh with century media um and I, you know bands are kind of drawn to labels for a lot of different reasons and i'm kind of curious as to what brought you back to them um if you go back a bit when we sort of did a comeback and went to century media uh, I, I remember i was pushing a lot because we did this sort of comeback after many years and I really wanted to everything be different just for the sake of it. And I remember pushing to the guys that let's try another label. Let's work with other people. Let, let, let's see how it works, you know? And uh, yeah, we signed a deal with Central Media, did two albums. Unfortunately, not one of the, one of the maybe better ones we've done, but uh, 
we fulfilled the contract and uh, we just hadn't decided right away to let we need to go to metal bay we went in and actually did an old school demo you know four tracks and uh, asked our uh, management to yeah sh ship it around you know to some labels and metal Blade were on fire when they heard it so uh as you said we have a history and uh, they managed to hear like four four songs from the corporate speed random and they were like yeah we need to work together again and and uh, what i found very appealing is that there were still a lot of people working there that we have worked before and i know them and they're really good guys and girls and uh easy to work with and of course it's fantastic that they're one of the bigger labels as well you know we know that they can uh, you know get our music out and uh, in different formats and all that kind of stuff so but i th i think in a sense we feel a bit more home at metal blade uh, it was good to uh, walk away a bit, you know, try out something else, but it's always good to come home again, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the the optics uh, of those kinds of things to fans is kind of interesting because they may see bands moving around as uh, as an indication of a number of things when it could simply be that there's an A&R guy that you really like at a label and they are the ones moving around. And so the band is following that because they want to work with someone that they trust. Uh, and that could be a person just as much as the company. It sounds like in this case, it may actually even be both of those things. Yeah, it is. Uh, this, as I said, really good guys. Uh, we have a very good relationship with a guy in, uh, who runs the German part of the European metal blade, uh, Andreas Reisner. I mean, we go way, way back, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's amazing to work with him. I trust him a lot. Mm -hmm. Now you are sort of 30 years in, if we add in the hiatus years and uh, 10th album, you know, are these landmarks something that you kind of pay attention to or is it just another day, another dime? And, uh, you know, we see bands sometimes put out re-releases, which you've already done, or remasters and things like that. Uh do you have plans for anything of that sort in the future to commemorate this landmark or is it just like another year let's keep doing it actually we're pretty proud of the sort of album number 10 and uh, i believe it, like magnus said in a press release that now we're in the big boys club you know it's uh it's a fucking cool thing not so many bands managed to do 10 albums and i mean and 30 years as well and um the shitty thing is that we had a lot of ideas that we what we wanted to do, but then the whole COVID thing came in, and because we we had discussions that we need to celebrate the thirty years, let's do a fucking three-hour concert, let's play so many songs that it's ridiculous, you know, and record everything, and at least do something special, you know. But uh, yeah, the COVID thing came, and uh, so we didn't manage to do anything special to celebrate 30 years so maybe we'll need to do that like next year or something like that but uh, yeah for us it means a lot um we started playing when we were so young you know 14 years old and uh, we managed to fucking see the world together so it's, it's amazing definitely um and then uh you know looking back a few years ago when you know you were looking at restarting the band was um just totally scrapping the crown and starting anew on the table? Or was it always kind of this idea of picking up where the crown had left off and um, either continuing on with what it was or kind of, you know, taking the original idea of what it was and, you know, keeping in the tradition of it, but kind of changing it up a little bit? I remember when we, when we, when we quit, uh, because it wasn't an intentional break, we actually quit the band and uh, my spontaneous honest uh, opinion was that uh, i'm not interested in playing death metal with other people because uh, uh, this is where i'm happy playing death metal with the guys in the crown so during the break i did like two solo albums it was totally different type of music it was under the name angel blake more like i don't know a bit more normal paradise lost sounding music maybe or something like that but uh, then when we sort of came back it, it, uh, yeah, it was not a discussion. It's like let's fucking go into the death metal world again. You know, that's uh, that's where we write so well together music. So uh, uh, I still think that we are developing it, 
and uh, we are not repeating the albums. You know, we are we are managing to do something uh, new for every time. So it, it, yeah, for us, the death metal thing is still interesting. And when you kind of came back, uh, did you vow to not repeat anything that you had done in the past, whether it was some something musical or something from like a a, bi- a band business perspective? What lessons were your ta- were your takeaways from that time? And uh, have you stuck to the things that you decided you were going to do and not do? Yeah, uh, actually, the whole break that became a break was the best thing that could happen to us because um, um, it allowed us to sort of uh, have a bit of a normal life uh, for years. And uh, because, as I said, we started playing when we were 14 years old and then it was like, demo after demo after album after album after album you know so the the it was the only thing we did and uh so when, when the sort of band broke up uh i think we had a break about was it five six years and uh, there's a lot of good things that happened we managed to you know some of us went to school some of us got some proper jobs and uh, most of us got families and uh, so when we came back we knew that we need to do this with a bit of common sense, with a, a bit of balance, so we can actually have, make it work. So we really learned a lot. I think that if we wouldn't have broken up at that time, we, we would have fucking imploded in the end and it would have been really nasty because um, I, th- I think the break gave us so much perspective of our lives so that we, we really learned to value uh, that there are other things in life than metal, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, that helped us a lot. We learned a lot. Now, uh, your son plays metal and he may be getting close to the age that you started, uh, playing in the crown. And so I'm kind of curious as to one, like a couple things, but you know, first, like how, how do you teach your son, the things that you learned throughout the process of playing in a band and touring so that uh, his journey can maybe be different. Uh, like, how do you, how do you kind of steward his experience? Yeah. <clears throat> That's also a way to, uh, I want to find a good balance there because uh, I, I really want him and the, the guys, you know, to have their own successes and make their own mistakes, you know? So, uh, I'm definitely not there, you know, telling them what to do. But I always tell them that I'm here if you want to hear my opinion or if you, if you want my help. But I, I, they do. I want them to do do it their own way, you know. And uh, and luckily, the I mean, the guys are so. I'm not sure if you heard there. They released a debut album. <laughs> I mean, considering that age, you know, it, it's fucking spot on, you know. And um, I was happy to produce it, and uh, it's great. I, I'm there to support them. I'm not there to take over and guide them. So you know, uh, I want them to have their own journey uh, in this. And uh, obviously, ask me sometimes. You know, how does it work to, um, to be on tour? How do you how do you get shows and stuff like that? And sometimes I can help, but sometimes that it's also so different. I mean, my reality from the '90s. It's not like it is today, you know, how you get, you know, get your mu- music across. You know, I mean, he doesn't even know what a fucking cassette player is or something like that. So, um, so different realities. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, as someone who was in a band at a really young age, um, there was always this extreme level of enthusiasm when, um, when we would get offers for, you know, really big opportunities and, there was no one there for us to really guide us and say, Hey, manage your expectation. Like this is good for you, but like keep your head kind of low to the ground and, you know, kind of keep grinding away. How do you approach these things with your son who might be getting, you know, some praise coming their way because the album is really, really good. How do you help him in managing the expectations of, of what other people are um, seeing him do? Yeah. It is pretty difficult and uh, we talk a lot and um, I mean, it is like you say, when you're, when you're younger and you, let's say someone, you get an offer to do a, a, a 10 date headline tour in Europe or something like that. 
what you see in front of you when you're young, you see fucking arenas, you see everything is perfect, you know? And we did that. Our very first European tour, uh, like 14 days in Europe, and we played like 20 people per night. So uh, I can tell, tell him stories like that, how it actually works, you know? That, uh, I mean, if you have, I don't know, 100 followers on Spotify, it doesn't mean that you're going to play on arenas you know <laughs> so um it's uh, it's it's a it's a long way to get there you know, on that level when you're actually uh, having very professional tours and uh, because there are first of all there are a lot of idiots in this scene a lot of assholes and um yeah we talk i i, I try to explain my perspective but in the end i wouldn't go in and say I forbid you to do it because if you want to do it, I'm sure you will learn something in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the realities of what it's like to be a small band now, as you kind of alluded to, are different than they were in the nineties. Um, so what's it like to jam with your son? That is amazing. It's, uh, it's really cool. <clears throat> uh, we can jam whatever and we all we also this is pretty cool we like when i wrote motor death the song uh, he can also play the drums so we i asked him to play the beats and i you know worked on the music you know stuff like that so we so we either jam you know cover stuff slay or whatever or we jam each other's songs or riffs and stuff like that so it's it's really cool so um, uh, yeah it's just amazing because uh, even though he's so young, he, he fucking knows everything about, you know, the, even the old school stuff and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it, yeah, it's uh, beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of on that note too, in today's music world, we're seeing band democracies kind of change because I think, you know, even 10 to 15 years ago, a guitar player was a guitar player. They weren't programming drums, right? But now, because we have all this technology, everyone all of a sudden can start throwing ideas into the mix, which is, in my opinion, a good thing. But how do you see this affecting maybe the ideas that your son's band is facing and comparing it to yours when you all get together? Is there a, like a different air in the music creation process between your son's generation and what you're doing? Well, the obvious difference is that the only possibility we had to show each other riffs, that was in the rehearsal place, you know. Uh, but now, like, uh, with the Sarkate band, they, they all sit at home and record stuff on the phones and send files back and forth, and then they meet up in the rehearsal room, you know. Um, and sometimes they can also even almost create the foundation of a song just by sending stuff to each other and talking, you know, over the whatever Zoom or whatever, some, you know, different environments and stuff like that. But uh, uh, so in that sense, uh, the crown is definitely more old school. We like to rehearse <laughs> a lot. Uh, obviously, Sarkate rehearses a lot as well, but they, 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 they use the technology. Of course, they, they should. That, that's, that's a good thing. And um, yeah, it's different approaches. But in the end, well, the only thing that counts that you need to do a good song, you know, and uh, some people can do it by file sharing or what, you know, and some people can only do it by playing, you know, you know, face to face with each other. So, uh, but in the, in the end, the only goal is to do a good song. Mm -hmm. And kind of on, you know, the pr modern production too, we're seeing more and more hyper uh, chopping and layering and synthesizers being added in, especially in the death metal genre. It's kind of, like it's just becoming to me obscene at this point a little bit um where do you kind of stand on these modern production practices that are just so crisp and pristine that they're almost pop tracks but heavy i don't like it <laughs> i i find it really difficult um uh i know when that came but that sort of productions came in a few years ago I, because I, I work, I have a studio, I work in a studio, I, I love working with audio. I was so impressed how, as you said, how fucking glossy and bright and perfect everything sounded. Uh, but, but I mean, I've, 
when I listen to a, an album with, that is so perfectly produced and it's so grid aligned and everything is perfect, I mean, they could have they could have skipped the drummer and just programmed the drums from the start, you know, because the, the, they're so devoid of life. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a drum machine, you know, and uh, every guitar break is perfectly muted and there, there's not a single error anywhere. Uh, today, when I hear a production like that, it's like a, after five seconds, I, uh, I get bored. I get bored because, uh, and especially like drum production wise, they, they fucking all sound the same. They all use the same drum samples and, you know, it's, uh, it has that typical modern metal drum sound. And uh, uh, that's why we, at least for us, we went into the studio. We said, we're not going to sample. We're not going to, I want you to, what you're going to hear on the album is, the, is Hendrix drum kit. You know, there's no other, why should he buy a better, more expensive drum kit if you're going to sample it anyway, you know? So uh, let's work with what we got, you know? And I think it creates, a, in the end, more original way. I mean, okay, I'm a bit older, but I mean, if, if I listen to like the five first Metallica albums, they all sound different. The uh, Kill 'Em All, Ride Lighting, Master Puppets—they all sound different, and I'm sure they sound different because they managed to also get up new amps and drums, and I mean all of that. But today, it doesn't matter what amps and drums the, some bands have because they will be so tweaked and overproduced in the studio anyway. So uh, a simple Marshall can sound like a Mesa Boogie nowadays. They just reamp it and do the magic and change everything. So uh, for me. For me, it's devoid of life. <laughs> so. mm-hmm, absolutely. You can literally take a Marshall hook up into that head. A, what are they called? Axe effects, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there you go. Boom. Now it's a Mesa Boogie or whatever, whatever you want. But that is kind of where the a lot of bands are heading. And so the expectation from metalheads and death metal uh, fans specifically is kind of more and more that sound. How it's just how do we kind of get the people away from that and say, Hey, this is like a cool thing, but also like it's totally devoid of life. And how, how do we go from here and show people like, Hey, this is what it is. This is what death metal was. And it still can be that you can have that high level of production that modern metal albums have right now, but it doesn't have to be as like clean cut and pristine as you guys have shown, but how do we, how do we take the genre and kind of push it that way? by making albums like that <laughs> but uh, it is uh, it is i had an interview earlier today and we discussed about the same thing because they if i understood it right they, they, it's a magazine they work in a team like uh, i don't know six people and they're different ages there and uh, the one uh, there are around my age thought the royal destroyer production was awesome and then there were younger kids there and they thought it but this sounds a bit too rough, you know, we're used to the, the perfect stuff, you know, so it, it might be a generational thing or whatever, but I don't know, maybe more bands just need to dare and go in and, uh, you know, don't overproduce, don't, don't, don't take the easy road, because it's also the same, same thing, I mean, it's easier to make an album in that way that it sounds like the metal albums today, because it's all about editing. It takes time. I can sit here in my Pro Tools and just super edit everything, and it sounds like you're the tightest guitar player ever. So it's not a difficult thing to do. It may take some time, but it's, it takes more balls to show how you actually play and, uh, you know, show how, how you do your fucking chops, you know, and be proud of it. Don't be, don't be afraid to show how you sound like, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. I come from like a, a grungy punk background. And, you know, I think even if a lot of metalheads don't really want to own up to it, they grew up on Nirvana, they grew up on grunge, they grew up on Mud Honey, and these are bands that exploited their their mistakes. They reveled in it. And so it, to me, it's just very interesting to see, granted, it's weird to think that was 30 years ago now, but like, that is the environment that a lot of these bands kind of uh, looked up to, at least in their younger years, and then they d- dove into heavier music. So it's just interesting that we went from something that was reveled in its dirtiness, and now we're here in this very clean era. Actually, maybe when I think about it, maybe it's natural that there's also counter counteraction. You know, uh, after the grunge, there comes something more 
I don't know, clinically more polished, produced or whatever. And uh, maybe the dirt, in, they, actually the dirt in this came back a few years ago. There was a lot of these old school death metal bands, you know, but uh, it was fun for about a year, but then, then it became too much. I mean, they wanted to sound like this, you know, old uh, old school death metal bands and they all used the HM2 pedals. And, but, but I think that, I mean, you don't need to go in with the mindset that you're gonna copy something from, you know, the '90s, just go in and fucking record, and uh, mic it up properly. Use a good studio if you can, and you know, uh, commit to the sound. You know, obviously, you can't go on tour or do some shows to promote this album at this particular point. Um, but uh, what does the next uh, couple, uh, several months look uh, look like for the Crown? Yeah. It's a bit sad that we don't have a single show booked because it's it's so fucked up these times. Uh, I mean, you see constantly bands announcing tours and then they cancel it. And, you know, it's, it's it's just terrible. And uh, of course, we feel pretty frustrated that we're releasing now what we believe is a very strong album and we can't go out and play. You know, uh, it's really annoying and. Uh, I don't know what a plan B should be if we should attempt to do one of those streaming stuffs, you know, stuff recordings, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't really decided if it's a, it's a good way to go or not, but uh, yeah, it's frustrating that we can't go out and actually play the, play the new album, you know? So um, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Do you have a suggestion? Stream? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> We can't solve all the problems here, unfortunately. I think the 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 live shows are live streaming, which I would argue are re-recordings that are just streamed at a certain time. Um, they are they're in they're interesting as like a kind of moderate substitute for yeah. seeing something, but at the same time, you know, you've also put out now two DVDs. Uh, you know, I mean, they're from a slightly different era of the band, but it's something that has been done before by the crowd. And I think like the I think the challenge is finding something that you can do next. Right. It, it, it's if if it's something that someone's done, it's already been done in a way. So where is the there is a diminishing value as that is already done of what how people are going to perceive it. And even if you add like tons of production value, like uh, I know Behemoth did a, a pretty like uh, involved production. Um, you know, bands have also spent a lot of money on place. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different like movable factors that you have when it comes to creating a production like that. Um, but being original is uh, is a challenging thing. I thought actually, oh man, this was 20 years ago or was it yeah 20 years ago when in flames put out uh the album come clarity they just did a rehearsal foot i think they were rehearsing in a place a little bit nicer than where they were rehearsing but uh they did uh put out like rehearsal room style um footage which was interesting and it kind of brought you into their environment uh maybe it has something to do with that what have you seen any of the like streamings and have any of them been interesting to you? I think you and me agree a bit because you seem to be a bit, uh, you're not sold on the idea of the sort of fake live streams either, because that's how I feel is that you're trying to do the, the live thing. And uh, when I see some people, you know, you're on stage and try to faking it, it just, <laughs> hurts my heart because I know they're faking it. They have no energy feedback from audience. They have nothing. So they, so I'm not sure if, if that is a good idea. I've seen a few uh, and uh, yeah, I'm not really convinced. I, I, I think that it's like you said that someone needs to come and do something original with this uh, whole streaming thing because, you know, just faking the stage thing. I don't, I'm not really sold on it. I'm not sure it's, if it's a, if it's a, the best idea, you know, uh, I told someone else, like maybe we should just 
play a fucking co- full concert out in the snow or something like that, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but also, the, like you said, with the In Flames, with the rehearsal place, that's also the thing we discussed because, I mean, Metallica did the same thing when they released that very controversial Saint Anger album. They also released a DVD when they play the whole album from start to finish in the rehearsal room or maybe in the studio. So that's an idea as well. But um, we were actually supposed to uh, do some sort of st- streaming thing in February, but uh, the COVID thing struck again, so we couldn't rent the place. And uh, yeah, it was bad. But I'm sure we will do something. We just need to figure out a fucking cool idea. Uh, something that maybe differs a bit yeah for sure i think those streams that hold like a significant sense of place uh typically are like for me the ones that i really have enjoyed i know like alexi said the behemoth one was really uh it just was integrative and they incorporated a lot of it, it was obviously a huge production and a lot of money but i think it paid off for them and then the other miniseries I enjoyed, I think it was Live in the Mojave Desert, where we saw Earthless and a few other bands over the course of a few weeks um, just playing in yeah. the middle of the desert. Yeah. Simple concept, really cool though. Yeah. Play underwater, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yacht show. Yeah, pl- <laughs> playing on playing on a, a prison on the on the uh, a prison island, right? And the yeah. the same band that played in Antarctica did that one, I think. So, uh, do you have any any kind of final words as we uh, as we wrap up here? Apart from buy this album, <laughs> buy this album, please. No, uh, no. As I said, we don't have any concrete plans. That's so sad. So I definitely can't pitch anything cool here. But uh, yeah, check out. You know, we will announce on you know Facebook as soon as we have something, and. Uh, we try to keep the Facebook relationship very, very sort of intimate. We want to interact a lot with the people there. And uh, maybe that's the first thing you will hear some, some new plans that will hopefully happen, you know, whatever we come up with, you know. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll stay tuned for the uh, live on Alcatraz uh, coming to us soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Marco, for joining us. Uh, all the best with the rest of the press cycle and everything else that is going to come in the future. Hopefully all the best things. Yeah, well, thank you all. It was a nice chat. Man. All great. Yeah. Like, thank you. Bye. Take care.